Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I've always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the guest and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the show, its host, or any of the companies they represent. Now, today on the show, we have psychedelic expert, Paul Austin. And Paul and I have a deep conversation about psychedelics, plant medicine, and how it can help or introduce people to the higher evolution of spirit, to the broader spectrum of reality. And we go into very deep, sometimes dark places in this conversation. So let's dive in. I'd like to welcome to the show, Paul Austin, man. How you doing, Paul? Good, Alex. How are you, man? I'm good, brother. I'm good. Thank you so much for coming yeah. on the show, man. We're going to talk today about all things psychedelics and what it does, good stuff, the bad stuff, the in-between stuff. I've been fascinated with it uh, ever since I first discovered or heard about it. I have never partaken myself. I, I get high on my own supply, as they say. Uh, <laughs> but 
but I'm very, very interested in the medicinal, uh, the medicinal um, aspects of psychedelics and microdosing and that kind of stuff, as well as the spiritual aspects of it, which are also fairly, fairly profound. And now because there, you guys are allowed to do research now again on LSD, mm-hmm. which was recent. I think it was how many years ago did they finally open that back up? Because that was shut down because of uh, what's his name, <laughs> uh, Nixon and the no, war on Leary. drugs, and, and, and no Leary and Timothy Leary. Leary for yeah, Timothy Leary did yeah, not help the situation at all. <laughs> two sides of the same coin. I mean, LSD became illegal in California in 1966, and then on the federal level in 1968. So still, it's illegal, right? It's a Schedule One sure. substance. Nowhere is it accessible. There's been a little bit of research on LSD, but most of the research in the modern era has focused on mushrooms, psilocybin, and psilocybin. Got it. Exactly. Yeah, less stigma. You know, it's a shorter experience. It's six hours. LSD is 12 hours. So it just works better for clinical trials. And now what's interesting, I mean, and we can delve further into this as the podcast goes on, Oregon has legalized psilocybin. Colorado has legalized a lot of these plant medicines in California. Uh, as At the time of this recording, is about to send a bill to Gavin Newsom's desk to mm-hmm. legalize mushrooms, ayahuasca, and San Pedro. So there's been a lot of progress and uh you know progress also comes with some dark sides in terms of mm-hmm. irresponsible use and uh things like that so it's a rich topic it is man so so what got you involved like what made you want to study or you know understand more about psychedelics in general yeah you know, i i grew up in a traditional family in in west west michigan grand rapids church every sunday pretty sheltered uh upbringing couldn't watch, you know, rated our movies till I was 17, you know, no violent video games. Um, and when I was 16, my parents found out that I had been smoking cannabis a few times. Mm-hmm. And I always had a little bit of a rebellious streak. You know, I wasn't necessarily the type who would just do what people told me to do as uh, is probably evidenced by my work. And mm-hmm. so we sat down, it was a Sunday after church and my dad looked at me and my dad's a very sweet man, like kind guy. We have a great relationship, but also grew up in the the war on drugs and mm-hmm. uh, had been raised in such a way to believe that, you know, any and all legal drugs were the the sort of spawn of, of Satan. Uh, and so he looked at me and said, you know, this is this is the most disappointed I've been since my brother passed away in a car accident 30 years ago. And that, I think that guilt and that shame was just representative of how I had been raised, you know, the, the sort of rigid Christian environment, their relationship to quote unquote, you know, bad drugs. And what that opened up for me was a sense of, Oh, like, I had a really great experience as early on with cannabis. They were fun, a bunch of laughter, had a chance to really connect. I, I had struggled with social anxiety in high school. And so I thought if I had such a great experience and my parents are just like, so in the, the, you know, we're not even in the same ballpark when it comes to this understanding what's really going on here. And so as I continue to grow and evolve and mature, individuate, as, as Jung would say, um, I looked into LSD and psilocybin mushrooms when I was 19. And the same friend who introduced me to cannabis introduced me to, to, to mushrooms. I had my first experience at the age of 19. And in particular with LSD, just had this kind of like awakening, right? I, I did it in the woods with a few friends on a beautiful May day, felt connected to everything around me, really was a before LSD and after LSD 
um, uh, moment in terms of that spiritual awakening, that recognition of oneness, that recognition of interconnectedness with all beings. And from that path forward, from that time forward, I just came to realize that if used with intention and responsibility, these these substances can catalyze incredible um, incredible insight, uh, awareness, uh, even performance in some ways. And so at that point in time, I was still trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life and my career? You know, who am I? Where am I going? You know, I'm 19, 20 years old at the time. And one of the core teachings from those early experiences was, you know, I, I am the creator of my own reality, right? And I have the sovereignty, I have the autonomy, I have the ability to create my own life. So why, why live in any sort of conventional manner? Why not just have the courage to um, build and create the life that I want to live? So at the age of 21, I moved to Turkey where I taught English. Soon after that, I um, uh, moved to Thailand where I started my first business. And I just pursued this path of entrepreneurship, which led me to uh, back to psychedelics. So in 2015, I'm living in Chiang Mai, Thailand, uh, living the digital nomad lifestyle. And I hear a podcast about microdosing. And I thought back to those early psychedelic experiences and I was like, oh, yeah, I remember that for a week or two weeks after these LSD experiences. I felt more connected. I felt more present. I was meditating more often. I was eating healthier. I was more mindful of who I was and what I was doing. And then inevitably after, you know, three, four, five weeks, some of that would start to dissipate. And so I thought of microdosing as a way to keep that window of neuroplasticity open for longer to just make it easier for me to change and adapt on this path of personal development and on this path of entrepreneurship. And so I started microdosing in 2015 with LSD twice a week, and I found it to be very helpful. And it just happened to coincide with um, a timeline where more podcasters like Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss were talking about psychedelics, more research was coming out, cannabis was becoming legal. And yet there was no sort of definitive educational platform that helped to recontextualize psychedelics in a way that wasn't too hippie, in a way that wasn't too academic, that was, you know, well-branded, well-researched, but also well-presented. And so I started Third Wave in 2015, eight years ago, as an educational platform uh, with the focus of how do we educate, you know, uh, mainstream populace on both the benefits and risks of psychedelics rooted in science rather than uh, propaganda and stigma. Yes, that's a pretty amazing answer, sir. That's a, like, that's a long journey we just went through. So, all right. So with psychedelics, psychedelics is a generalized term and Uh, a lot of people don't know what that means. Can you kind of give the, the names of what that encompasses? We kind of tossed a little bit about that out there, like psilocybin and things like that. Can you kind of just give a, just a brief understanding of what psychedelics are and, and honestly what they do to the brain chemistry? So the word psychedelic comes from two Greek words, psyche, which the Greeks interpreted as meaning mind or even soul, because they saw the relationship between those two, and delos, which means manifestation, right? And and the, the, the these, these, these substances were termed psychedelics in the 60s when Aldous Huxley, who's a well-known author, uh, wrote Brave New World, uh, but also was a Vedantic uh, teacher and philosopher 
and uh, was on that deep path of spirituality. So Huxley is exchanging letters with this gentleman named hum Humphrey Osmond, and Humphrey writes back and says, I think we should call these psychedelics, meaning, again, psyche, mind, delos, manifestation, because they do something to manifest all aspects of the mind, right? So much, especially in Western culture, we're conditioned to think the mind is only the ego, the conscious, but there's so much in the subconscious and the unconscious that can be tapped into, right, as a result of awakening. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And so what these early pioneers and experimenters in the 50s and 60s realized when working with LSD in particular, but also mescaline, which is in San Pedro and peyote, was that it opened this aperture of consciousness, right? That in normal waking day reality, our aperture of consciousness is quite limited. So we can stay focused on the things that need to get done. But that um, that means we can't really tap into these other uh, aspects of reality. And so when we take a psychedelic, it opens up that aperture. All of a sudden we experience sounds and sights and visions in a totally different way. And in many cases, we experience, uh, you know, stories that maybe we forgot, or we uh, go into trauma that we have repressed, or we feel emotions that we've kept sort of tucked away for a very long time. And so that ability for psychedelics to open up um, the, the subconscious and the unconscious, it's kind of like, you know, we have all these skeletons in our basement that we just don't want to look at, or we don't want to confront, or we don't want to face. And so when we take a psychedelic, there's really no choice but to confront those demons, right? There's really no choice but to look the dragon in the eye and go, okay, like, I see, I see who you are, I see what you want, and have the courage to actually face it. So, um, and that's why a safe container is so important. That's why it really needs to be held in a responsible way. Because if you're, if you're going into those dark places, those dark crevices of the mind, and in any way you feel unsafe, it will lead to paranoia. It will lead to anxiety. It will lead to a quote unquote bad trip. Um, now what's going on from a neurochemical perspective is when we take, especially a high dose of psychedelics you know, we have these two hemispheres of the brain. One hemisphere is responsible for logic, uh, you know, and analysis, getting things done. The other half of the brain is responsible for creativity, for art, for music, right? These sorts of things. So oftentimes, you know, when people come into working with psychedelics or any spiritual path, they have over-indexed on the uh, hemisphere of the brain that's overly analytical, that, that's logical, that needs to get things done. So essentially what happens when we take a psychedelic is it helps to balance, rebalance the brain, for lack of a better term. It helps to develop greater connectivity between those two hemispheres of the brain by activating neuronal pathways that have sort of they haven't died necessarily, but they just haven't been used in a long time. And when those neuronal pathways haven't been used in a long time, that's when we feel depressed. That's when we notice there's a lot of rumination. That's when we feel overly contracted. And so working with a psychedelic sort of reactivates those neuronal pathways, opens us up to be more expansive, which allows us to uh, feel a little bit more creative, feel motivated, feel like, oh, I actually you know, especially if we're depressed or we have an addiction, we feel like, oh, I actually have sovereignty to make a change in my life, to heal this, 
and to to integrate this. So it's kind of like you're taking the blinders off. You know, in in normal life, you only can watch, you can only see maybe ten percent, and then this opens up that you can see a hundred percent, which is overwhelming to someone who's been only seeing ten percent their entire life, and then that also then triggers a lot of foundational um, shaking up, whereas you were taught or brought up with your programming like you were Christian. I was raised Catholic that there is certain things and, you know, the, the stories and all that kind of stuff that we hear in our religions. When you take a psychedelic, it shows you a truth that completely changes the perspective of what you've been taught. And that alone could throw somebody off for a loop because then now you have to ask yourself, well, what was that? So it's not just a, it's not the brain just making stuff up. You're actually tapping into other aspects of reality, which depending on the person can be really scary or really pleasurable depending on what you are dealing with. Is that a fair statement? And that's, I think, why preparation before going into these experiences, ritual, ceremony, all of these are very important important mm -hmm. elements, right? Like just taking a bunch of acid and going to a music festival, <laughs> you know, for most people, not the best idea because they'll be potentially even more traumatized after that because they might have a very, a very challenging experience. So it really is important that there's preparation that's put in preparation and when challenging emotions come up, let's say in the throes of a psychedelic experience, how do I re-anchor in breath, regulate my nervous system through breath, and come back to a place of sitting, of presence, of awareness, right? And so when we're looking at, especially these higher doses of psychedelics, microdosing is a bit different, which we'll get into, I'm sure, but with these higher doses of psychedelics, people have to feel very, very safe because even if they're going into these, you know, like someone who's had uh, early childhood trauma, you know, maybe they've had an alcoholic parent or they were subject to abuse of some sort or, um, you know, there, there was some other really traumatic event that happened early on. Oftentimes when you take a high dose of psychedelics, you have to confront and go into that event. And that catharsis yeah. is what leads to a lot of the healing rather than just, I'm going to take Prozac and Zoloft and keep it pushed under. When we open that aperture of consciousness, all of a sudden, the things that have been stored in our subconscious and our unconscious come into the light of day. And we have to go, oh, like, how do I, how do I deal with that? But the difference is, though, when those things come up, you're also gifted with the knowledge that you are much bigger than this little brain and this little ego and this little body that we're in. So at the same time, you're giving a great challenge, but you're now understanding like I am sovereign. I can make I can make decisions. I am much more than just this. So then there's a balance. So if people listening go like, I don't want to deal with this. I don't have the tools to deal with that kind of stuff. You're gifted both the opportunity to heal and the tools and understanding <clears throat> to be able to deal with this kind of trauma, correct? And that, from a neurobiological perspective, the reason that's happening is because we have this little almond-shaped thing called the amygdala that's deep inside our brain, right? And so the amygdala mm -hmm. is that fear response center. And so oftentimes when we are choosing or when we go into these challenging emotions or stories that have come up that amygdala freezes up and actually won't allow us to access it which is why some people could go to talk therapy for 10 or 15 and 20 years and they'll make a sliver of the progress 
of of what they might make after you know a few high dose psychedelic experiences because neurobiologically when we take something like psilocybin or mdma it's mitigating that fear response in the amygdala it's turning that fear response off so we don't have that sort of fear and contraction we actually can open up we can feel expansive and we can hold our presence as we go into uh, that maybe difficult event or experience. And of course, that's also why it's so great to have a therapist or a guide or someone who is there present with you, because sometimes things need to be talked about. Sometimes there needs to be an emotional release. Sometimes, you know, the presence of another human makes us feel safe enough so we can really go into those difficult and challenging aspects. So I want to I want to tell you a story, and I want to hear from from a professional standpoint, someone who's very experienced yeah. with LSD. I had a guest on the show. Um, he is an Oscar winner, and he wrote the movie Ghost uh, back in the '90s. If you remember Ghost, he also wrote Jacob's Ladder, which you'll understand more why he wrote Jacob's Ladder after the story. He was in Berkeley during the time of Timothy Leary, and his buddy, and he had never tried anything. His buddy's like. Hey, Tim is, uh, Tim, he needs you to receive a package from Switzerland. Uh, or I think it's Switzerland or Sweden or wherever the, the LSD was. It was. So yeah, he had a pure bottle of LSD raw from Switzerland that just showed up. Oh. And he's like, do you, Tim asked, can you put it in your refrigerator and he'll pick it up in the morning? He's like, cool, no problem. So he puts it in the refrigerator and his buddy's like, I think tonight's the night you should try LSD. Not, not even thinking about Tim's, just his own. He's like, here, take a tab. He took a tab and it just didn't do anything for him. Like he nothing happened. He just, he didn't do anything. And he's like, well, we got the thing with Tim. I mean, should we just try some of Tim's? He's like, well, this isn't working. So let's give it a shot. So he takes a dropper. He takes a dropper of LSD, like of, of the pure LSD, like a little dropper. And he's supposed to do a drop on Bruce. His name is Bruce's tongue. He accidentally threw the entire dropper into his mouth. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So <laughs> it's like, you can't call anybody. You can't do anything. It, you're, you, the, the train left the station. So he just like sit down and let's see what happens. So from your point of view, how many, how how much of a dosage did he partake? Let's say it's a, a normal size dropper of LSD, dude. So like what, what are you talking like 60 drops, maybe? <laughs> 80 drops? What is that on dosage-wise? For in from well, your experience. A, yeah, there's an interesting anecdote when LSD was discovered by so Albert Hoffman is a Swiss chemist. He worked for Sandoz Pharmaceuticals. Right. He was the one who invented LSD in 1938. Didn't realize it had psychoactive properties until 1943 when he took it off the shelf, tried like a tiny, tiny, tiny bit and was like, oh, I feel sort of something from this. Went back the next day, took what he thought was going to be a minuscule amount, which is 250 micrograms. So there's a thousand micrograms in one milligram and there's a thousand milligrams in one gram, right? So 250 micrograms is tiny, 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 yeah. tiny. Yeah. And it's like, oh, ends up having a full-blown experience because he doesn't realize that LSD is the most potent substance, psychedelic, known to man. And so something like that, if you're getting pure LSD from Sandoz, 
right? Because even a lot of the in LSU today, like, like in 1964, yeah, like the 65, 60s, right? yeah, like yeah. the purest, yeah. purest, yeah. Because a lot of the LSU today, it's diluted. You don't necessarily yeah. know how much is in it. It's under, so it's like, right. but pure undiluted LSD, you know, and probably just a single drop, there was a hundred micrograms. So you figure if he did 40 drops, 50 drops, 60 drops, you're looking at 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 micrograms. That's insane. Which, which is, you know, like 50 to 60 times what a normal high dose would be. It's five to 600 times what a microdose is. And so at that stage, like, had I been there, just putting <laughs> myself in that place, like one, there are actually um, substances you can take that will kill the LSD experience. Right. Right. And so, so I, I, I think niacin, uh, you know, oh, just wow. a B vitamin will yeah. pretty much mitigate it. And there's another type of pharmaceutical tratazone, I think it mm -hmm. might be, that can also help to mitigate it or kill it. But assuming neither of those were available, you mm -hmm. know, the best thing is just like to stay with your friend, yeah. to provide a lot of love, to make hot tea. And I think the constant assurance that you're not going to die Right. I think that's the most important thing is a lot of people are like, oh, my God, I just did all these mushrooms or, oh, my God, I just did all this acid. There has only been one death from taking too much acid. That was that was physiological. Right. There actually have been quite a few deaths of people who take a bunch of acid and, you know, jump out a window or jump in front of a car, or do very dangerous things. Right. But in terms of physiologically, there is an elephant in the 50s or 60s that was injected with the equivalent of, I think, must have been 30 or 40 or 50,000 micrograms. Uh, and that amount of LSD ended up, I think, somehow killing the elephant, like a ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous amount. And, and an elephant. So, <laughs> in an elephant. <laughs> in an yeah, elephant, yeah. not a human, yeah. And, and so there's no there, there, there's no known level of toxicity for, for LSD. And so I think the important thing is like, you're safe, you have tea, and then just allow someone to go in. Because at that level they're experiencing total and complete ego death oh. and ego dissolution. Like, so absolutely. You want to, no you want to hear what his trip was? I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> his trip was this. He goes, Alex, uh, I went in, I looked at my body and it started to deconstruct one piece at a time. My nails were pulled out of my fingers. Fingers were pulled out of, I saw my muscles deteriorate. My bones deteriorate. I was literally dissolving into the universe. And then, Yada, yada, I mean, I forgot the, the, the details in the middle. It was yada, yada, yada. I met God, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> I had I, I had a conversation with him um, and then was thrown back in at the end of the trip and my body reconstructed itself to where it was before. And then I came out of it. And of course, after something like that, he never was the same again. And everything from that point on, he was it was all spiritual like it, it, there's always spiritual aspects to everything he did so he wrote a script called jacob's ladder with tim and it turned into a movie which is about his trip and if you watch that movie you understand it's a trippy ass movie he goes that's the closest i've ever seen even remarkably even minimally close to what a trip is and anyone who's watched jacob's ladder will go oh yeah that makes sense and then he wrote ghost then he did another movie called My Life with uh, Michael Keaton, and uh, and he I think he did about thirty movies, and all of them had some sort of spirituality aspect to it. And now he teaches Tibetan meditation, uh, and and he's like full blown like I don't want to deal with Hollywood anymore, and I'm just I'm just 
finding enlightenment. Uh, but that was his that was his path. So I was always fascinated um, by that. And interesting too, I've had I've spoken to a couple other people who's had trips, and they said that there was one trip. This I forgot who told me the story, but they got they took LSD or psilocybin, one of the two. I think it was LSD though, and they were like shot into the universe. And they were just going at the speed of light and they got to the end of the universe and there they saw a being, huh. a, be- a being, an alien being who turned to him and was like, you're not supposed to be here. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? You, you got to go back and like just shoot him away and went back. Years later, he took another trip, went back to the same place. And the, and the, the guy was the, the alien being was still there. They was like, dude, I, what are you doing here? I told you, you're not supposed to be here yet. Go. <laughs> so it's it's really, really kind of fascinating. And that kind of leads us into the next part of this conversation, which would be the spiritual aspects yeah. of it. You know, we've kind of danced around a little bit about it. Um, you know, it's been known that everybody who goes on LSD, psilocybin, ayahuasca, they're transformed many times spiritually. Um, not all the time, but it opens things up because you start to understand that you're not just this you are seeing other realities uh i've spoken to uh literally last week i spoke to a, a guru from india and i asked him what do you th- what do you think about lsd and like psychedelics to find enlightenment or find you know the other side and he was like no i'm, I'm against it because it's just it's dangerous if you don't do it right and i he said he he used to work with the Maharishi uh, Maharishi, um, mm. and he said, which is this is the most beautiful way of putting when Maharishi was asked about psychedelics because it was in the sixties and everyone was talking about it. The Beatles were hanging out with him and everything, and he said, taking a psychedelic is like taking a sledgehammer to a wall to let the sunlight in. Meditation is like putting in a window, mm. and I was like. Because it's a pretty, I mean, psychedelics can be like you just sure. in there. Another yogi told me you're walking into a door that you weren't invited into and you mm. might not be prepared to see what's on the other side. Mm. When you meditate or when you do these longer processes to kind of open these doors up naturally, you are kind of acclimating yourself to what comes like you're not just like boom there's god <laughs> boom there's you're like oh there's the darkest the darkest level of the soul right there I, I you're not thrown into it so their perspective is different but i was talking to aubrey marcus about it and his perspective was really interesting because he said what the yogis don't understand is that there are some people who don't believe that there's something on the other side and they need a psychedelic to open the door to give them an idea that you are more than just this. And in that sense, it really opens up the awareness and it changes their life to the point where then they might go down a meditation or might do a dark retreat or might do a, a float or you know all this kind of other stuff um, to get to that same place. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about what I just said. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my own story tracks with this in some ways, right? Like I was, I, I mentioned that I was raised in um, a more traditional Christian Protestant environment, church every Sunday from the age of, you know, when I was probably baptized at three months old until 18, four hours. And that whole entire time, I just said the prayers and did the things because I was young and my parents wanted me to. And, you know, you're told to do it, but I never believed any of it. I was just like, this feels <laughs> weird. It feels like, 
You know, I'm like, what is this? And so this friend, the same friend who introduced me to cannabis and then mushrooms happened to be an atheist, which was very rare where I grew up. Most kids were, you know, Christians and don't. So he happened to be an atheist, very independent thinker. And so I remember towards like the age of 16, 17, 18, 19, starting to more get into atheism and reading Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and, mm-hmm. you know, folks like that, just being like religion's totally like you know there is no god uh there's no such thing as spirituality right life is everything as we see it and then i did acid and, <laughs> and i did acid a lot you know like uh, you know between the ages of 19 and 21 i did acid and mushrooms probably 20 to 25 times uh, at higher doses not super high doses but anywhere from like the equivalent of one to three hits of lsd we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor And now back to the show. And I just kept coming back to this, this sort of ground of reality that I was like, there is something here that my mind can't figure out. And so that actually put me into this path of trying to understand what it was, seeing sort of the, the substrate that informed a lot of mainstream religion, being able to get in touch with that. And so I read this phenomenal book called The Perennial Philosophy by Aldous Huxley. Mm-hmm. And, and in The Perennial Philosophy, Aldous takes all these aspects of um, sort of religion and shows how all of the mystical elements of Judaism and Christianity and um, Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism, like they all have these commonalities uh, in the mystical traditions. And so I started to go, oh, like there's something that I tapped into when working with psychedelics that has allowed me to see beyond the veil, that has allowed me to see beyond this sort of reductionist worldview that I was starting to become overly attached to. And so that that is what then opened up for me, the sense of there's 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 something else out there, right? And I think that is particularly important for, for, a, for a Western society that uh, the, the core metaphysic of, of uh, Western thought and culture is materialism, reductionism, that everything can be sort of boiled down to a physical item, right? That the the Eastern philosophies and Eastern kind of ways of being are much different. They recognize this truth of interconnectedness. There's a lineage there. Um, and what happened in the 60s, just to continue to, to go with this story, what happened in the 60s is you had all of these um, teachers or, or all of these people who are becoming teachers who are now the, the main meditation teachers. So you have like Jack Kornfield and you have Sharon Salzberg and you have Tara Brock. And, you know, we obviously know the story of, yeah, of Ram yeah. Das, right? You have all of these people and almost every single one of them without exception got onto the path because they did psychedelics mm-hmm. and that's what opened them up. And then of right. course, as they grow and evolve and mature, they realize, okay, psychedelics are these really potent tools, are these really potent vehicles. Uh, I don't necessarily need them anymore because I get it. And I know how incredible of a practice meditation can be to continue to bring me back to that space. And so I think the the reason the yogis and the reason the gurus don't necessarily grok it is because their culture and their lineage is totally different than sure. the, the culture and lineage that we've been raised within. It is you know, you go to India, you go to Nepal, you go to Tibet, it is baked into the fabric of their existence, yeah. right? And when you right. look at the history of uh, Western thought, we've been cut off 
from plant medicines for oh, 1700 years, you know, absolutely. since the Christian church cracked down on the Eleusinian mysteries. And so I think there's a way in which mushrooms are coming back into our um, consciousness, if you will, into our reality in a really big way, because there's this, we're, we're, we're reaching a precipice where uh, our way of life is potentially going extinct. And if you look at when and how psilocybin mushrooms show up in environments, they always show up in environments that are stressed, that are toxic, that aren't doing well. And they come into those environments and they help to revivify them. And so there's a way in which psilocybin mushrooms are coming back at this point in time as a way to help us quickly adapt. So that way we don't sort of go full bore into, I would say, killing ourselves as a species. And so that's also kind of the way that I look at it is you can sit on a cushion and meditate. You can even do things like breath work. But as Sam, Sam Harris said in a really poignant essay that he wrote maybe 10 years ago called The Meaning of Drugs, there's no guarantee that you'll reach any sort of nirvana or any sort of expansion or any sort of seeing beyond the veil. If you take five grams of mushrooms or seven grams of mushrooms, or if you take 300 micrograms of LSD, more times than not, you're going to experience something and something significant. And so when I look at kind of culturally, how do we compress time in such a way to address this sort of meta crisis that we're facing? I see psychedelics as that tool that can really help us as a culture to quickly wake up and actually address and confront the sort of oh, that we find ourselves in. And this goes back even, you know, everything is everything is in fractals. So the same way that psychedelics help an individual to overcome that fear response, to face things with courage, to confront reality as it is rather than how we wish it were, right? Psychedelics are also going to help us, my sense is to do that on a collective level, right? And really give us the courage and the capacity because of how they help with creativity, how they help with outside the box thinking, even how they help with things like chronic inflammation from a physiological capacity, give us the capacity to actually confront the crisis that we find ourselves in and adapt to to come out the other side in a way that's more resilient in a way that's more um integrated in a way that's more connected you know all these sorts of things uh, yeah it's, it's it's interesting and ramdas actually said the same thing that you said is that he you know started he was doing a lot of lsd with timothy and he was just like man i'm i'm kind of tired of having to take lsd to keep going back to this place and then he met the maharishi, maharishi and just said Oh, this guy's there all the time. Oh, okay, right. I want to, I want, I want to learn what he's learning. So you're right. It opened the door. He would have never, ever in a million years with his upbringing, ever discovered this without LSD. So for certain people, it's needed. For others who might be more spiritually open, might be doing meditation, might be doing breath work, other or other practices that open them up a little bit, they might not need it. So it is a case by case basis and I've, i I spoke to a veteran the other day uh who is doing he did two or three trips i think he did two or three trips with psilocybin but he also did ayahuasca um doing it for real in peru with a shaman you know because right. there is dangers if you do it the wrong way as, you, as you've said and he said uh, my ptsd is gone it's gone 
after one or two trips uh, with ayahuasca, I think. And then he's actually now become a proponent of psychedelics, um, specifically psilocybin, to help veterans with PTSD. Because it's it's not a pill you take for the rest of your life. It's mm-hmm. there's not a there's no a lot of money in it uh, on the pharmaceutical side. It's like you do one or two trips in a controlled environment with therapists and and you're and you're cured. That's pretty remarkable, you know. And I know a lot of the pharmaceutical companies aren't happy about that because that hits their bottom line. But there is a there is a place for it, and there is a place for it. And well, I want to ask you now because you've kind of studied this area so much. How does modern psychedelics use compared to the indigenous traditions like um, peyote, like ayahuasca, which, by the way, can we just say real quickly, the miracle that ayahuasca is, that there's a vine and a leaf from two sides of a jungle that without each other will never create the psychedelic experience. And some magical way, <clears throat> some somebody connected these... T- to from thousands of miles away to create ayahuasca. That's what the odds of it happening are like one vine, one leaf in this entire jungle. <laughs> like it's pretty remarkable. I heard that. I was like, well, I mean, there has to be some divine intervention in that I've, I've ever heard it. <laughs> well, I think the, the, the shamans say, or the people, you know, the, the people, the Quaranderos who work with ayahuasca say that plants told them. Right. And so I think this, this speaks to sort of the indigenous or the animist or the pagan, traditions it's like in these in these societies it, there there's a deep reverence and relationship with the earth and the intelligence of non-human species and so i think when we look at the indigenous use it's and not even indigenous like indigeneity is, is it's interesting but also just ancient use sure Right. Exactly. Like not only was ayahuasca used in the Amazon and, you know, the Mazatec used psilocybin and the Weechal used peyote and, you know, but you oh, also but you go had... back to e- Egypt, go back to Egypt, go back to the Vikings. I think they all had something that exactly. they took that ancient got them India, to that place. It's written about in the Vedanta, oh, you know, yeah. ancient Greece. It's written about in, you know, Plato and Aristotle supposedly mm-hmm. partook in the Eleusinian mysteries. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. So there was always there was always ritual. There was always ceremony. Um, in ancient Greece, it was always kept a secret, meaning you didn't tell anyone what happened uh, in the actual experience. And there, it was it was often used, especially in indigenous lenses. This is not so much the ancient Greeks, but indigenous lenses. It's often and has been used to heal what they call soul sickness. So a lot of shamans in indigenous societies are, they're the doctors of the indigenous societies, right? And so ayahuasca is a tool that they use, a scalpel that they use to heal the different sickness, the sicknesses of the soul, right? And so that is how they look at it. That's how they use it. And that of course is way different than, you know, a modern psychotherapeutic context, which is something's wrong with your dopamine, something's wrong with your serotonin, something, you know, even something happened in your childhood or something happened in, you know, it's, it's, it's a totally different lens. Right. And so I think the, um, the sort of task of this third wave of psychedelics, which is where the name third wave came from. First wave was ancient and indigenous use. Second wave was the counterculture 
when psychedelics resurfaced in, let's say, Western lineage and reality. This third wave is what is the middle way between ritual, ceremony, animism, indigenous use, right? The recognition of these plant medicines and psychedelics as intelligent uh, in a way, and science, precision medicine, protocols, best practices, ethics, even. You talk to a lot of people who go, you know, in, in a more modern lens, they go down and they sit with the Shipibo, who are uh, uh, an, uh, an Amazonian peoples in Peru. And there's still a lot of, you know, patriarchy. There's still a lot of um, ways in which the male shamans maybe are sometimes an unethical in ceremony. So I think there's also this, this sense of how do we find the middle way in those between those two paths so we can honor the ritual and the ceremony and the lineage, but we can also ensure that people are safe, that it's effective, that protocols are optimized, because we're really looking at now more than ever a new paradigm of not only healthcare or mental health, but what it means to be well. And and you were speaking to this a little bit. It's like we could take Prozac and Zoloft and Xanax and benzodiazepines, and those will mask a lot of the symptoms of the underlying sort of festering wound, if you will. Or we can take a psychedelics and we can go straight to it, have that catharsis, integrate it. And it's maybe only, you know, you, you do that one high dose, maybe just two or three or four times, and then it's yeah. healed. And so this, this is a totally new paradigm where we don't necessarily need to be on quote unquote drugs the rest of our lives, but we can actually have the sovereignty and autonomy of choice to really go, okay, this, this is how I want to heal. This is how I want to transform. And these are not only the medicines that will help, but also the practices, the behaviors, the habits that I can weave in that will help me to be more present, more loving, more connected. Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting because the pharmaceutical companies and society in general is like, you can't be on these drugs. You have to be on these drugs. Right, because these are the drugs we're making money on. We can't make money on leaves. We can make money on these these drugs. So, it, it's really interesting. And there is a lot of you know negative propaganda. I mean, I mean, just on weed alone, for God's sakes, is the most beat up plant on the you know in the Western in Western history. Where finally it's starting to come out. And yeah, it could be abused. Anything could be abused. Water could be abused. <laughs> you drink too much water, you're going to die. Like you know, everything could be abused at a certain point. But it's it's really interesting to see how the truth of these things are starting to just come out. And very respected scientists are now are doing many studies in major universities on psilocybin uh, specifically. <clears throat> You're right, LSD, not as much, but psilocybin um, and the other uh, DMT is another one uh, that I heard so much. But there's like documentaries. I, I could see people talking about this and they see the reaction of what people do. And by the way, in those studies, a hundred, I think it was a hundred percent said that they had a top five life experience. Wow. hundred percent. Um, 70 or 60%. It's the number one lifetime experience. It, like it's like beyond birth of the child, beyond marriage. Or, it, it just, it opens them up. They said it was, it was fascinating to see how people, um, react to this because it opens them up to a truth that they just thought was gone before. Um, mm -hmm. 
Now, let me ask you this. We've been talking about microdosing. What is specifically microdosing? Is this a long-term kind of way to keep, like you were saying, keep the window open a little bit, but in a very a small sliver of a window as opposed to a giant door? Is that kind of where it is? Can you explain it to people? Yeah, microdosing is uh, about a tenth of a regular dose of a psychedelic. And the, the thing is with microdosing is it's a sub-intoxicating dose level. So there's no visions. You know, there's no major changes in your everyday reality. You can still, you know, have conversations, go for walks, you know, sometimes people live your life when they're yeah, on live microdoses. Life. Live your life, you know, uh, live your life. And what's what's important with microdosing is that the the sort of concept of microdosing is not necessarily that you just take a low dose of a psychedelic once and see what happens, that there's a protocol to it and similar to mindfulness meditation right like john kabat-zinn is is a great teacher mm -hmm. he has msbr right mindfulness or M mbsr mindfulness-based stress reduction which is i think a six to eight week program where if you commit to meditating every day for a period of time you'll notice that after those six to eight weeks your nervous system is more regulated you're less stressed you're less reactive microdosing is very similar where it's not necessarily, okay, I'm just going to take a little bit of a psychedelic today and see what happens. I mean, you certainly can do that as a, as an opener, but it really is doing it two or three times per week for a month or two months and getting clear on what is the objective? What is the intention in working with, you know, a microdose of LSD or a microdose of psilocybin. And oftentimes people notice that at the end of that initial protocol, they are a little more present. They're a little more aware. They have a better mood. They may have more energy. Um, a lot of people are are looking to microdosing as a way to wean off certain psychiatric medications like Prozac and Zoloft. Um, and then a lot of folks notice that it helps them just to be a little bit more creative, a little bit more in flow. So the the use of microdosing is quite, I would say, widespread. There are a lot of people who are interested in this. Uh, and I think the important things to emphasize are it's a protocol. A protocol still requires an intention. And that microdosing is not necessarily a magic pill. You know, we've been conditioned in sort of the age of Prozac to think that if I just take this pill, it'll fix my problems. Mm. Uh, opiates, you know, all these sorts of things, right? If I just take this, okay, my depression will go away. I'll feel better, whatever it is. And what we emphasize is that rooted in this sort of scientific lens of neuroplasticity, when we microdose consistently, it's helping to create something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, which is a precursor to neuroplasticity. And so as we microdose quite a bit, um, it becomes easier to meditate more often. It becomes easier to um, you know, eat healthier and make better decisions. And the microdosing helps but when we become sort of psychologically dependent on it, where it's like, okay, if I don't take this, then I'm in trouble, that's when some of the challenges can arise. So it really is a process of coming into relationship with it, working with it, understanding it, but also not necessarily becoming dependent on it. And I think this is also, it's like what we've talked about already in this, this episode. It's like psychedelics can really help with awakening. They can help with that realization, but you shouldn't necessarily become dependent on just always taking a bunch of acid after you have the awakening that's when you know for me especially when i started doing acid i was like okay i need to meditate 
every day as a way to continue to integrate this. So I think that is also true with microdosing uh, to have that, like, it's a useful tool, but don't let the, uh, don't give up your power to the tool, continue to hold that for yourself on your path of, you know, sovereignty and, and creation. That's beautiful, man. Now, let me ask you this. What would you say to the skeptics of, of psychedelics? I mean, there's, I'm sure if someone's listening this far and are is skeptical about all of this, you obviously are interested, uh, but you, but your programming is not allowing you to really open yourself up to this. So what, what kind of assurances or advice, or what would you say to people who I'm, because I'm assuming you run into people who are skeptical of psychedelics in your line of work. How do you approach that? We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Like my parents. I mean, when I first told my parents <laughs> yeah, that, exactly. I, that I work with psychedelics, they were, you know, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you take LSD or do mushrooms. And I mean, the I didn't devil. finish it's my- the devil's weed. It's the devil's weed, obviously. <laughs> yeah, I didn't finish my story, but just a few years ago, I came back home and actually guided my dad through a, a mushroom experience. And it was sort of wow. like a, a full circle moment where, because I was showing up the way that I was, I had him read a book about psychedelics, Michael Pollan's How to Change Your Mind. Yes. And he became oh, open okay. to that. He started microdosing. And then I was like, look, I'm happy to do a higher dose journey with you and sort of sit for you. And he was super open to it and ended up having a really beautiful journey and experience. So I think, look, the, the truth is like psychedelics aren't for everyone. Some of the skepticism is 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 well-deserved, right? Like there could be people in here who are listening who maybe they have a family history of uh, schizophrenia or, you know, they've had a, a family member who has had a psychotic break with psychedelics, right? Like it is important to tread lightly, to do your diligence, to know kind of if it's right and if it's not right for you. Because I think the most important thing is that you yourself are fully making that choice to engage with this, that you don't feel sort of convinced or pulled into it by um, by by someone else. There has to be that full choice and that willful participation. And I think the other thing then is knowing that these are not addictive physiologically, um, knowing that just because they are illegal doesn't make them bad, right? The reason they became Schedule One substances in the first place is because the Nixon administration couldn't make being a hippie illegal, but they can make the drugs that the hippies were using illegal, like cannabis and LSD. So knowing that these are anti-addictive, knowing that they have a long, long lineage of use, we as humans have been using this for th these medicines for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, and that as long as the use is safe, intentional, responsible, it's... um it's more likely than not going to be beneficial. It may be difficult, right? Just like getting in a cold plunge is difficult or just like doing, you know, certain types of therapy is difficult. But that that challenge, that confrontation is where a lot of the healing and transformation often comes from. So we kind of touched upon the bad trip uh, when things become challenging or they're in an environment that's not, you know, ideal. What advice would you have for somebody who's having the bad trip and if someone's sitting or guiding them through a trip that just happened to be bad, so on both perspectives, is there any advice you can give? So for any challenging experience, bad trip, this goes back to what we had talked about with the example a little bit, right? 
really creating a feeling of absolute safety and bringing someone deeper and deeper into their breath, right? And we have uh, done a lot from a business perspective in this space, but the thing that I'm most excited about now is we have a training program for practitioners. So coaches, facilitators, therapists who want to learn how to work with psychedelics, right? We bring them through this process of even before you are guiding someone else to make sure that you assess what is what is their background? What medications might they be on? Um, what are maybe some challenging experiences they've gone through? How can we help them prepare for an experience? even by sitting in meditation for an hour or doing some breath work, where I find anchoring in the breath is really important. And that way, once you come into a journey itself, even if you're sitting for for a friend or whoever it is, to just remind them again and again that they are safe, that they are loved, that this will pass, and to come back to the breath, right? And I think in a worst case scenario, having you know, maybe a tratazone on hand or having, uh, you know, niacin on hand or having something on hand where some therapists who do psychedelic work, if it gets really bad, they'll have someone take like a benzodiazepine or, you know, like a, like an anti-anxiety medication to, to sort of calm down and, and come down. So there are, there are sort of like worst case situations and, and scenarios that will require that. But I think as long as there's some level of assessment and preparation, and that dose level isn't too high to start with, right? Like a lot of the just general paranoia and anxiety that can come up can really be navigated by anchoring in the breath and um, encouraging a deep feeling of safety. In your experience, are there any psychedelics that are more or less spiritual, meaning that they open up different doors? Because um, you know some are pretty, so- some could be pretty soft and slow to get into, and others could be a rough ride. Uh, from my understanding, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So what kind of in, in modern psychedelics, I would define MDMA, ketamine, mushrooms, LSD, ayahuasca, peyote, San Pedro, 5-MeO-DMT, NNDMT, which is the active ingredient in ayahuasca, and iboga is like the 10 major psychedelics, right? And so the ones that are entheogenic plant medicines like ayahuasca, iboga, even mushrooms, those I think naturally have a slightly more spiritual context because there's this way in which they bring us into deeper relationship this with earth. the earth yeah. and where they came from. Whereas MDMA can be very healing, but MDMA is much more about love and connecting with another human, which of course has its own spiritual aspect. And ketamine can certainly bring someone into total ego dissolution, but the feeling of ketamine can be a little, I find, synthetic. And a little like just bliss and joy and and love, but not necessarily, you know, with ayahuasca, sometimes the teaching is the shadow, right? And I think some of these plant medicines bring us deeper and deeper into the shadow, which in many ways is where a lot of the quote unquote enlightenment can, can, can arise. So my sense is the plant medicines are really the best tools for the, the spiritual path. That's how I would frame it. Now, what is your... What is your stance on synthetic versus natural? You know, what would you do? Because LSD, to my understanding, is synthetic at this, or is it? What, explain what the difference are and what is synthetic and what's natural. So the ones that are synthetic would be MDMA, ketamine, and LSD. Right. Okay. The ones that are natural are psilocybin, 
ayahuasca, sure. the other ones all, we mentioned. All the plant. Right. Yeah. So I would say, look, this whole synthetic versus natural conversation, there's a lot of fallacies. Like there's a lot of things that are natural that are that will kill you. And there's a lot of things that are synthetic that are found to be safe, um, you know, beyond beyond comparison. Sure. Psychedelics, I think, are are a little particular in that um oftentimes the synthetics can have a somewhat a feeling where it's a little bit too much just bliss and joy and kind of the light without the balance of 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 the dark and the shadow and so sometimes if people are taking too many synthetics there can be this aspect of spiritual bypassing we mm-hmm. find and if they're taking too many synthetics um i think there's a higher likelihood of becoming manic or becoming um, taking too much, right? You eat it. You can't eat too many mushrooms. I mean, you can, but you'll just puke and vomit it up, right? So, with a lot of these natural, the body has sort of a, a baked-in physiological response where it can sort of keep the body in somewhat a, 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 a stage of of a balance. But with mm-hmm. the synthetics, as your friend experienced or the <laughs> the guy that you interviewed, right? You can take a lot of synthetics like LSD and that could potentially lead to a massively imbalanced state, or you can take a bunch of MDMA, uh, but that could lead to a potentially like, like really, really intense experience. So I think there's just not as much baked in balance to the Mm. the synthetics that the natural substances really uh, just sort of have and allow for. Fair enough. Fair enough. Now I'm going to ask you a few questions. Ask all my guests, Austin. Um, what is your definition of living a fulfilled life? There has to be this beautiful marriage between the individual. Why, why am I here? What is my mission? What is my purpose? Why am I showing up every day? And that really has to be paired with how am I in service? How am I stewarding? How am I creating or, or, or yeah, creating something that is, that is having an impact and helping other people live a really beautiful life. So there has to be the 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 I and the why behind the I, but there has to be just as much the we and the sort of um desire to serve the the greater collective. If you had a chance to go back in time and talk to little Austin, what advice would you give him? The same advice I would give my current self, which is patience and to know that everything will happen in the time that it's supposed to happen. And that 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 sort of presence of patience actually allows for a more an enfoldment that is more in integrity and more aligned. So patience, patience, patience. I think that's that's for me always the reminder and the reminder that I would also like just it's what my dad always told me growing up. And it's it's what I'd continue to come back and, and emphasize. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. How do you define God? I mean, God is the paradox of existence. God is the undefinable sort of ineffable um, ground of all being. And, and God is also the, the, the vitality that is imbued in all life all things um, <laughs> and all things yeah and what is the ultimate purpose of life self transcendence to realize that the 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 i is limited 
to realize that there is this path towards greater awareness and knowledge and that it lies in the capacity to transcend and that the, the sort of path of the bodhisattva, this path of enlightenment while remaining in service, I find to be sort of the, the greatest purpose of, of existence. And where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing, my friend? That's a, that's a much easier one. So <laughs> if there's any coaches, practitioners, those who want to get involved in the space or interested in about it, uh, just go to our website, the, the Psychedelic Coaching Institute, and that's psychedeliccoaching.institute. If folks are somewhat new to this and they just want to learn more about microdosing and psychedelics, that is the third wave. So that's our educational platform. We have an app that folks can download. That's a community where you can start to meet and connect with others who are on this path. That's the third wave.co. And if folks are interested in a podcast that goes deep into this topic, um, I've been hosting a podcast for the last seven years and that's the psychedelic podcast. So the psychedelic coaching Institute, third wave and the psychedelic podcast. Those are the best next steps to, for folks if they want to learn more. And Austin, do you have any parting messages for our psychedelic friends listening? <laughs> Just to start low and go slow to, to know that these are tools, but they aren't the thing itself. And that we're all in many ways doing our best to live a life of happiness, fulfillment, and purpose. And that psychedelics are one of the tools or modalities that can help us on that path. Brother, man, I appreciate you uh, coming on the show and sharing your knowledge with all of us. And hopefully this will help somebody uh, who's interested in this world to step lightly, uh, but to step forward if it's right for them. So I appreciate you and the work that you're doing in the world, my friend. So thanks. Thank you, Alex, for having me on, for being such a gracious host and asking some incredible questions. It was fun. <sighs> I want to thank Paul so much for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge with all of us. If you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash 344. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.